Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I invite you to have that passage open with you. You can follow along with us. Do you join me as we pray? Almighty God, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Please let your word do just this in our lives today, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. With or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people... To do evil things, that takes religion. These are the famous words of Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist Steven Weinberg to a New York Times journalist back in 1999. Of course, Weinberg's subjective bias against any kind of religious expression is well documented, but I couldn't help thinking that in some sense at least, the Apostle Paul might actually agree with these words. After all, Paul points out quite clearly in this passage at the end, human precepts and teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we're going to explore what this actually means this morning. In the letter that we've got in front of us that we're working through at the moment, the letter to the Colossians, it seems that Paul is addressing 
a kind of broad issue of a multifaceted socio-cultural creep inside the church, something that actually all churches everywhere are susceptible to. And this influence from the world is diluting Christians' pure trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And the result, of course, is that as faithful frogs are boiled slowly in the secular soup, is that Christians are drawn away from and, and led to doubt the total sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember our key verse for the whole letter, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, stick with Jesus, because the gospel you were saved by is still the gospel to live by. Now, in the passage we're covering today, I think we're going to get as close as we'll ever get to the specific issues that we're facing, the, or that the Christians at Colossae were facing. In this case, Paul's concern is the danger of religious rulemaking that rather than promoting Christian growth, actually promotes sin. And so we're going to explore uh, what this means in these verses today. And we see it there first in verse 16 and 17 with the temptation to confuse shadows with substance. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. I wonder, does, does anyone remember air travel? And we used to do that thing where we go to airport and travel places. Well, before COVID, when I used to travel, I always found myself, I was really envious of those people who could travel without checked baggage. It was amazing. What sort of packing ninjas are they? That they're able to go away for a week with a tiny bag and just walk in and out of the airport without having to, you know, lug around a heavy bag or wait at the carousel. Envious of those people. But friends, no one becomes a Christian without some checked baggage. We all bring ideas and traditions from wherever we've come from, whether we've grown up inside the church or outside the church. This baggage, rightly or wrongly, tints our perceptions of the Bible, of, of Jesus, and even of other Christians. And the people at Colossae were no different. Some were Gentiles. They were from the non-Jewish nations with no knowledge of the Old Testament whatsoever. They might even have grown up with certain racist attitudes towards Jews. We know that the ancient Romans thought Jews were lazy because they didn't work on Saturdays. But others, and probably a smaller number in Colossae, were Jews. They had all the Old Testament laws and practices. They'd grown up with them. They had God's promises to them. They had a historic identity as God's people, and it shaped every aspect of their daily lives from childhood. As you can imagine, getting these two groups to live well together as brothers and sisters in Christ was often very difficult. The kinds of things Paul describes here in verse 16 are essentially Jewish practices, Old Testament things. But they were in danger of becoming a point of judgment between Christian brothers and sisters in the church at Colossae. Are these things bad now that Jesus has come? Well, no, they're not bad. They have value because of what they are a shadow of. And yes, the Old Testament remains God's word. Is it wrong to follow Old Testament laws? Well, in a sense, no. 
It would have been very hard, though not impossible, to get Jewish believers to start eating bacon or to stop celebrating Passover or the Saturday Sabbath. Probably as hard as getting Gentile believers to start or getting to give up bacon. The problem comes when these religious rules become an end in themselves as proof of authentic Christianity, as a means to judge others rather than things which point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of everything that stood there. Which is why Paul doesn't say, it's interesting, he doesn't say, don't do these things. He doesn't give them another rule. He just says to them, Jesus is better. So why would you settle for the shadows when you have the substance? And it really is the difference between shadows and substance. It's like if I met you on the beach one afternoon uh, when the sun's out, and, and I spoke to your shadow instead of speaking to you. How would you feel? And you'd probably think I was a bit crazy. Why would I want to speak to your shadow when I have you in front of me? In Jesus, we have everything that these things could only ever point towards. 16th century reformer John Calvin put this very starkly. He says, Paul, however, had something farther in view. For he contrasts the bare aspect of the shadow with the solidity of the body and admonishes them that it is the part of a madman to take hold of empty shadows when it is in his power to handle the solid substance. How about that? So yes, it's shown in shadows over substance. It's also shown in verse 18 and 19 where there's a temptation to aspire to a supposedly superior spirituality and to make religious rules that demand that others do the same, as if these things were a mark of a true Christian. You see, previously we had these Old Testament things that were taken as a mark of a true Christian. Now we've got these uh, spiritually superior ideals taken as marks of a new Christian. So Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Asceticism is about denying the material in the pursuit of the spiritual. So some Bibles... uh, Bible you might have in front of you today might call it false humility. It's about saying no to things like meats or perhaps alcohol, nice clothes, as if rejecting those things is going to make you a better or more worthy Christian. It's not wrong to you know, choose not to do certain things, but when you think that those things that you're not doing will make you a better or more worthy Christian, there's a problem. One commentator states the obvious. In the apostles' teaching, it is sub Christian to deny the good gifts of a bountiful creator in the cause of an advanced spirituality. As for the worship of angels, it's probably not actually worshiping angels. I think the Colossian believers would have spotted, you know, such nonsense miles away. It's more likely to mean an imagined level of worship that exceeds simple human worship. It could be described as angelic. You know, is, is our worship of Jesus only authentic when everybody's got their hands up? 
Or is it only authentic when we've been transported into the throne room of heaven on a bed of atmospheric keyboard pads? Does ordinary worship by ordinary Christians not count? And finally, Paul addresses visions. Now, whether or not Christians have visions is a matter of debate. But must true Christians have visions? Must authentic Christianity give more weight and consideration to visions than to Scripture? Are we expected to one day grow up and move on from what God's revealed in the Bible to more advanced revelations? Well, this seems to be the temptation, that there is a a way to level up your spirituality through these religious rules. Now, this pursuit of a so-called advanced spirituality is dangerous for two reasons. The one reason is because those who do it, they posture themselves as spiritually superior to their own brothers and sisters in Christ, to other Christians. I am closer to God, they say, because of what I deny myself, or because of how I pray, or how I sing, or because of the visions I receive. Who are you? All you have is Jesus. I'm sure you can see the problem already. What they fail to see, though, is that the spiritual superiority is empty. It looks like growth, but Paul uses a, a, a quite an apt phrase there. He says it's only puffing up, verse 18 puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. simply means a deceptively empty increase where the dots don't actually join up, which is based purely on the activity of the human imagination. And the word sensuous is used here ironically. It literally means fleshly. So as people are supposedly pursuing an advanced spirituality, what they're actually pursuing is something incredibly worldly and has no place in heaven, really. You know, it reminds me of those inflatables that we see in people's gardens around Christmas time. I'm sure you drove around and saw them. Down the road from us, there was a Santa Claus that was, you know, taller than the double-story house that stood outside. It was huge. But I tell you what, you take a pen and you prick it and you discover there's nothing but air inside. It's puffed up. Contrast that, though, with a tall tree. I mean, some of these trees out here that have withstood the storms in the last week. What happens if you try to stick a pin in one of those trees? You probably damage the pin. That's because the tree has grown through real growth. And this is the kind of growth the the spiritually superior, with all their posturing, will miss out on. Because they're chasing something else. They're chasing the supposed advanced spirituality. This is why the Bible contrasts it with holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, rather than dividing over who is more spiritually superior, if we're all pursuing Christ alone, together, we experience real solid growth as Christians. It's not rocket science. It's God's plan. It's the gospel. And this really is the second reason that things, that this, this kind of approach to A superior spirituality is dangerous. Because not only do these things artificially divide Christians who are united in Christ, they also divide Christians from Christ. Because when we start to look to religion to help us level up spiritually, we've completely missed the point. We show a distrust of what Christ has done for us, a dissatisfaction with his cross, discontentment, with having our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Religion can't do for us what only the Lord Jesus Christ can, friends. Remember Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Does that sound like there's anything missing in Jesus? doesn't sound like that to me. Well, Paul starts to bring this whole warning about religious rulemaking to a close in verse 20. And whether it's religious rules about practices that are now completed in the coming of Christ or religious rules about leveling up spiritually, they all don't actually work for the one who is in Christ. So look with me at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The argument here, I think, sounds a little bit odd, but I think is a helpful way to think about it. Just imagine for a moment you've been given a cake for your birthday, a really nice, big, fancy, triple-layer chocolate cake. Got that picture in your minds? You hungry? Now, think, now, imagine for a moment that you think that the way you're going to show the giver of the cake how much you appreciate the cake is if you leave it on the middle of the dining table and don't touch it. Don't eat it. Just look at it. Doing everything in your power not to eat it. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because what are cakes for but to eat? What are you gaining by making a point of not eating it? What are you proving to the giver by not eating it? Making that rule for yourself. See, friends, God has given us so many good gifts to enjoy. He's given us so much in Christ. These gifts are to be used and enjoyed in the way God designed, yes. But there is nothing to be gained in denying ourselves what God has graciously given for us to enjoy. Can eating something or drinking something or not eating something or not drinking something change our relationship with God in Christ? Of course it can't. These sorts of religious rules only do what we read in verse 23. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, if you attempt to prove your Christianity, that you're more authentically Christian than the next person, by the things you do or don't do, things that make, if these things, do you think, make you more holy, or closer to God than the next Christian, Paul says, then beware. For these religious rules you've made for yourself, and by extension for others, all have one fundamental error. They cannot stop sin. So yes, religion can make good people do evil things. Whenever we're having serious rains like we're having at the moment, uh, all around the coast, there are always those people who ignore the warnings and drive down that flooded road. They go past the sign, and as their Corolla kind of gets deeper and deeper, suddenly the engine cuts out and they're stranded. Now, what good is it for you to stand on the side of the road and shout at them, if it's flooded, forget it! 
The rules didn't stop them getting where they are now, and it's, the, the rules are certainly not going to help them where they are now. What they need is rescuing. And to put it bluntly, the rules can't rescue. But friends, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for us. He has rescued us. Our passage today, you might have noticed, started with a therefore. And yes, we've always got to ask what the therefore is there for. It means that everything in verse 16 follows on from what has just been said. So back in verse 13, we were reminded that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now here in Paul, in verse 23, Paul picks up on this same fact of the Christian having died with Christ to everything that kept him or her chained and under the power of this world. Verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? See what's happened? Alive with Christ, dead to the world. Alive in the world, dead to Christ. Elemental spirits, these are sort of the principles and the worldviews of the world around us. But in Christ, we've been set free even from the religious rules of the world, which really just aim to get, get salvation under our own steam rather than through the Lord Jesus alone. <clears throat> so if we're in Christ, what it means is that everything we need to be accepted by God has been given to us freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moral logic of the world doesn't determine how we end up in God's kingdom or what keeps us we are in Christ. He is in us. We are dead to the world. We're alive in Christ. This is not to say, though, that following Jesus should ever be undisciplined, or that God is a God with no law. Of course, Christian uh, following Jesus is disciplined. It's the reason we call it discipleship. The problem is when we try and super, superimpose religious rules as a means of authenticating Christianity, proving genuine faith in Jesus and demand that others do the same. When we do that, in fact, we've done something quite evil. Because, friends, we can keep all the religious rules we want about what we do or don't do, about what we eat or drink or what we don't eat or drink, what we allow ourselves and what we deny ourselves, how we sing, what we sing, how we pray, when we pray, which Bible version we read, which preachers we listen to or don't listen to, which churches we will go to and won't go to, what language we use to describe biblical truth, what labels we use to identify with a particular theological camp. We can puff ourselves up with these things, but none of them will actually keep us from living worldly lives with worldly priorities. None of these religious rules that we all so easily make, myself included, None of these will serve to make us any more like Jesus. And we have the audacity and arrogance to demand that others do the same, judge their faith, disqualify their Christianity because they don't measure up to the religious rules we've made. Just this last week, I had the privilege of being uh, 
attending my the first time I've been able to make it to the Maruchidor Ministers Forum, um, uh, Ministers Fraternal. It was a great time together. Guys and girls who are not part of the church traditions that I've grown up in. I had to remind myself that just because they're not speaking the same language I am, because they're not part of the same church tradition I am, is because they don't read from the same Bible translation that I am, does not mean that they are far from Christ. It does not mean that Christ isn't working in and through them. And that they are indeed my brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're in Christ as much as I am. Gotta remember this, friends. It's often been said the difference between Christianity and the religions of the world is that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I think it's quite true. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus didn't say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Oh, he did say that, but he didn't stop there. And thank God he didn't. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, about imitating him. Because when it comes to growing to be more like Jesus, I can't expect religion and its rules to do what only the Lord Jesus Christ can do in my life. Well, and the obvious point of this question, the obvious question at this point, sorry, is how does holding fast to Jesus and dying with him actually have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? If rules aren't going to do it, what is? Well, here's the difference. I can say to myself, don't do this, don't do that, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. may work for a while, but at heart, all I'm doing is continuing to put myself under the power of the world and live according to its principles. Actually, that way of thinking, I think, even betrays a mistrust in God and what he's given us in Christ where I fear that he's going to stop loving me if I step out of line. This is what religious rulemaking does. It breeds fear. Or I can say to myself, you know what, with the Lord Jesus, I died to the world. The powers and authorities over me have been disarmed at the cross. I no longer have to obey their rules. no longer have to obey that temptation. I no longer have to obey those impulses. I belong to a new kingdom. You see the difference? In your life, where are you trying to use religion to achieve what only Jesus can achieve? Only if we hold fast to the head, to Jesus, the Bible says, from whom the whole body grows, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, will we grow with a growth that is from God. Let's hold fast to Jesus then. How about we pray? Father, we thank you for what you have given us in your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that the gospel has come to us, that we've heard it and understood your grace and truth. Father, we pray that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, 
for all endurance and patience with joy. And let us be thankful, content, satisfied with what you have given us in Christ. We pray this in his name, for his glory's sake. Amen.